This is Reimagining Healthcare, a podcast about innovation in the healthcare industry. It's a show for healthcare business owners, for healthcare professionals, for industry investors, and health tech entrepreneurs. On the show, I talk to health tech and healthcare innovators to uncover how they're reimagining and building a world of seamless digital healthcare experiences and how that fits into people's lives. I'm your host, Yanni Sopanos. Today, I'm speaking with Brandon Krongold and Matt Dowling, investment coordinators at Lighter Capital. It's a zero-dilution, revenue-based debt capital provider for growing tech and health tech businesses. Lighter Capital, based in Australia and the US, is the pioneer and largest provider of non-dilutive debt capital to tech startups in Australia and the US. Brandon and Matt share their story and how Lighter Capital has invested hundreds of millions of dollars into growth companies whilst explaining what terms like zero dilution, zero equity, zero warrants, zero personal guarantees, or zero financial covenants mean, and compare and contrast that with traditional debt and venture capital models. There are not that many reasons why a startup might fail, and one of those reasons is surely not having enough resources to continuously grow momentum. Therefore, every health tech founder should be learning what options are available to them to be able to access cash and or resources and when to engage with those options. Let's jump in. Brandon, Matt, how are you both doing today? Yeah, doing well. Yeah, no, it's great to have you both along, especially with the approach that you're taking towards kind of innovating in the areas of capital for startups and SaaS businesses. So pretty excited to have you both along to talk about what you're doing and the backstory around it. It's always good to start with that backstory. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your respective origins with Lighter Capital and even the Lighter Capital story as a background? Lighter Capital is traditionally a US company. It was founded probably what is it almost coming up to 12 years? I think it was 2010. And then was flourishing in the US. We had Melissa, who is our CEO. She's an American lady who's based down in Sydney. She came across as the new CEO of the company after NAB created a strategic partnership with us. She came across in 2020 and decided that Australia was the next expansion place for her and the business. And then yeah, we've been here since middle of 2020, which is obviously not a great time to start with COVID and everything, an expansion. But I came across about a year later. So I've been here since middle of 21, working in the business development side of things, trying to get the name out there and doing some marketing and getting deal flow going for the company. It's been awesome coming from a VC background myself, learning about this opportunity to come and help founders get some financial help without giving any equity was definitely a big selling point for me and something that I thought was not in the market already, but definitely could be pushed further into the market. So that was something that really excited me and really dragged me across to come and help out Lighter Capital and join the expansion. Fantastic. Thanks, Brandon. And what about yourself, Matt? I'm the investment director, so I work closely in Australia, so I work closely with Brandon. Yeah, I suppose exactly like Brandon, what dragged me across. You're speaking with founders every day, interesting people to speak with. They need some capital. They don't want to dilute. They can see us as an avenue to getting their business to that next stage where they can then maybe go in that Series A path or go and get some equity funding. So, yeah, it's been a really interesting start, plenty of interest in the marketplace, plenty of education to do. A lot of people don't realise it exists. And as we'll probably go into later, it's not easy to get all your metrics in place to get growth capital, non-dilutive growth capital. Everyone's really responsive and 
understanding and looking to grow their businesses, which is, you know, suits us. Yeah, it's definitely that term undiluted capital is is probably something that most startup entrepreneurs aren't really thinking about. It seems that everybody's been conditioned to go off and raise capital and exchange some shares in the process. So talk to that idea. How did that come about in terms of, hey, there's a problem here for startup founders and for companies seeking to grow? And they believe it's the dilution that is a bit of an issue for them. Is there a certain type of persona, a certain type of entrepreneur that kind of fits the bill in this area? Where did the undiluted insight come from to actually say, why don't we do this? My perspective is that equity is marketed well, gets the media attention. People then realise that we get a lot of our referrals actually from venture capital companies. So we're not anti-equity, not anti-venture capital at all. And we'll obviously often push some of our later stage companies towards that marketing making introductions but people realize their business wasn't in a really good situation they that can cause a lot of dilution and not get much money for that series a so they it's just that next stage how can we get a bridge to get some more money without diluting ourselves so we then can go into a dilution round and not lose out too much of a percentage of our business so there was a gap in the marketplace there a lot of capital was one of the first to acknowledge that and start offering growth capital with debt however you call it in that space with zero dilution, there was obviously some bigger players there around offering some debt for bigger later stage companies, but they were offering a warrant piece or an equity piece as part of that debt. But there was no one just offering a completely non-diluted product. So I think there was a major gap in the marketplace. And for those early stage post-seed, post-angel companies, they can see a definite benefit of how to get their business to that next stage before they go to that series A. What are the distinctions? And this seems like it sits in between so that equity and debt kind of options. So when you're thinking about how do I get money, how do I bring money into my business in order to allow me to execute my plans, get the resources in place and so on and so forth. So I've got an option now to go off and raise some capital. There are angel investors, there's venture capital, there's private equity, but on the other side, you've got debt. And so you've got banks, you've got overdrafts, you've got sort of credit cards, you've got personal loans and things of that nature. Explain the distinction between the two alternatives for people to raise cash for their business. When you're talking about the differences between equity and debt, equity comes across where there's a transaction between two parties. So the founders and let's just call them the venture capital companies as well. So they're exchanging a certain percentage of the business in order for a dollar figure. And what happens usually is you're getting a valuation that might not reflect how you believe the business looks because you can't achieve that. And that's not the fault of the founder themselves. That's just what the market's saying the business is worth. Whereas on our side of the funding, we don't look at the valuation and we don't say like, hey, you value your business at $10 million. That's fine. What we look at is the real life figures of what the business is doing. And that's kind of where I see it as a more realistic, but also like help them achieve that goal that they have of that valuation that they can't maybe get in that market in order to receive that later down their pathway. So we would look at their, at how the business is performing now and judge it based off that. And future predictions is important, of course, but it's not the end goal for us. We're happy to help them grow from their current state to that end goal without pushing them to go into the sometimes unrealistic valuations and proportions at such a quick rate when they're not ready. Yeah, because I guess what can happen there is that when it might be just a touch early to be able to assert what you think the value of your business is today and certainly or convince a VC that the value is there, your choice is basically to accept their valuation, which means that you're trading off a proportion of future upside 
in the equity value of the business, which could prove to be really expensive over time. Have you seen some examples where you could talk to what that looks like in pragmatic terms to really sort of emphasize that point on why alternatives could be actually a far superior solution in order to give you the opportunity to get up to a valuation that you believe your company is actually worth? There's a company who called Seamless AI who sort of started out with lighter capital instead of going down the equity path initially. But he sort of said, you know, lighter capital has made him $100 million more wealthy by taking that option initially versus going down the equity path because he would have taken, you know, probably would have given away 20% of his company initially. If he went down the equity path immediately, but he took several transfers from lighter capital, built that business up, and then he's obviously gone down that path at a later stage and he values that decision as making him an extra $100 million. That's, a, that's one good example, I suppose. There's plenty of examples out there. and It's just all about can you turn the money from a debt provider like ourselves growth capital provider like ourselves, can you turn that money into revenue reasonably quickly, which then increases your value, which then increases your valuation? We get lots of companies looking at those sort of options. Not all can get themselves in a position metric-wise. We are looking at back providers. You know, we're not looking at any guarantees on a house or anything. It's just basically we're looking at the business. Essentially, if something happened default-wise, we are left with a couple of computers and a couple of chairs, but there's no personal guarantees there. So that's one of the key things. I think that's another side of it, just in touching on that kind of other alternative, which is sort of traditional debt approach. You do have to go and provide security and some kind of assurances to traditional debt providers, which may not be an option for you or alternatively may be complicated because your status in a partnership or a marriage or something along those lines where that just becomes a lot of friction in kind of moving forward with that process. And even then, even if you can provide security, there's loan to valuation ratios and kind of limitations in terms of You just may not have the punching range in whatever net asset backing you've got to be able to get the right type of equity in. And I think a lot of people who have gone through that experience would understand it. You focus on the revenue of the business. So tell me more about that and why that is a key security source for you or a metric to actually base this type of capital backing on. In terms of looking at the revenue of the business, for us, that's the key factor. We think that if you're already generating revenue, it's going to usually increase rather than decrease. And it's a good metric for us to base our financing metrics off. We don't take, like a bank would, we don't have any guarantees behind our money. So I always say to a founder, the first thing I say is like, yes, we do provide revenue-based financing, which is you could look at as a financial loan. However, like we do understand that a startup is, they're risky. You're in this space where you're aiming to build a business and you need capital to help you out. And the last thing we want to do is back a founder and then it doesn't go well and then they're left with nothing because we've taken a guarantee behind it. So I always say like a bank, we're not going to be interested in taking your house or your cars as collateral. So there's nothing like that. So what we do is we look at the revenue of the business and our funding provides it's about 4x the multiple of your monthly recurring revenue is what we typically can provide. We sometimes can exceed that if circumstances need to be or warrant it. But when judging a revenue of the business, you can see a clear snapshot of an upward trajectory or a downward trajectory from the past few months. And that really allows us to base it off off that and see the growth of the business, the potential of it. We look at that recurring piece. Obviously, we're traditionally in a B2B SaaS space, but we'll look at any company with solid recurring revenue. But in that B2B SaaS space, it's very sticky, usually very sticky revenue. And you can see that definite growth trajectory, adding customers, which adds monthly recurring income. Often the customers who pay the most in those companies are the stickiest customers. And that really gives us confidence that we can model this going forward. A lot of our customers have a high percentage of their income 
is from that recurring subscription base. They might have some consulting revenue early on, but the more that revenue that is pure subscription or, or SaaS revenue, recurring revenue, the better off you know, we'll view that view that business. So when it gets up to sort of 80%, 90% of the revenue is pure recurring revenue. It's, it's really good on our part, but we do take, obviously, we do lend out growth capital to companies with lower total revenue rates than that, but it's you know, obviously the higher the better. The definition of monthly recurring revenue, is that specific to the client that you're working with or do you have a sort of a universal definition of it? There's a few things that we have. So there's the pure monthly recurring revenue where you've got $10 per seat and the business takes 10 seats. So they're paying 100 bucks a month and then you've got however many seats. So that's the traditional SaaS. The other one that we look at is if there is a services business out there, the other recurring revenue that we look at is if they've got a contract for a year or two years or five years with a certain business, what we do is we just divide that by however many months that contract is worth. And then we would account that as recurring revenue. So to us, there's two different streams. There's that monthly recurring revenue, that SaaS play, and then any contract that's over three months, we consider recurring revenue as well that we can incorporate into the amount that a business can receive as funding. What about a scenario where you've got a, let's say, for lack of a better term, a multi-service business model, which is in part got some kind of subscriptions in place, but then there are other fees that are generated transactionally as a result of the subscription. And that could range in the digital health realm. You could have a pure SaaS product that has a baseline fixed monthly fee for a seat or a user or a subscriber, but then may have some consumption transaction revenue that comes off. An obvious one would be things like SMS, messaging, things of that nature, as compared to perhaps a multidisciplinary healthcare service provider that has a professional services or healthcare services type revenue stream but there's also an application and some kind of subscription engagement that's being offered to its customers. Does your definition have flexibility to be able to cope with that? Or are you sort of excluding the transactional revenue, you're excluding the professional services revenue and just focusing on what you define to be the SaaS revenue? We'll look at that on a case-by-case basis. When I look at it, Brandon, we look at it first and I'll look at it as well. Then we sort of take it to the underwriting team. It depends on the pure SaaS revenue. We'll definitely have a valuation of that. We'll give you up to four times that monthly recurring pure SaaS revenue, but we'll look at transactional revenue. We might not give it four times. We might give us a lower rating depending on what type of how it's coming. If we can see it's pretty consistent, then sure, we'll put a multiple on that, maybe two times or two and a half times, depending on the type of revenue we consider it is. And then we'll maybe able to lend you more money than you're just looking at your, your monthly recurring revenue, your pure SaaS revenue. So it's a bit slightly subjective, but if we can see it's really recurring in nature and there's consistent customers spending like SMS revenue, you mentioned before, there's consistent customers who you can look at their the way they use your business, they sort of have to transact and use that every month to use the product properly. Sure, we can count some of that as definitely as recurring revenue. It just depends what multiple we use might come down to underwriting's subjective decision on that bit of piece of revenue. I think that'd be really encouraging for a lot of rising tech startups who are kind of have reached that point where they're actually monetizing the relationship and they're starting to develop their plans, their structures. They understand how an organization like Lighter Capital thinks about revenue. It might actually be helpful to founders to actually, if they do have some ad hoc revenues or alternative non-recurring type revenues in their business model, this could be an opportunity for them to refine their model, not only help them achieve better funding to accelerate their growth, but could actually improve their entire business valuation model because they're tapping into a subscription economy, which is clearly seen by parties like yourself and investors as being superior to lumpy, ad hoc, inconsistent type revenue. What are your thoughts on that? There's plenty of opportunities. There definitely is that marketplace valuation on that pure subscription revenue. It's, it's got a high valuation in the multiples that 
VCs value companies and the general market values companies. That's obviously the golden egg, I suppose, to get that pure subscription revenue. But if you can generate consistent transactional revenue or other pieces of revenue, which are viewed as consistent and are definitely needed by that that company to use a product properly, then you, that's going to be looked upon favourably in the market, be it us or be it on the venture side. You know, we're one provider in the marketplace that really focuses on that you know, SaaS recurring revenue, but we are we definitely do look at those other types of revenue and can count those towards. I mean, I can think of deals I'm doing at the moment in different spaces that all have some, not all are purely monthly recurring revenue, some have other transactional type revenue. It's all linked into their main product. So yes, we'll look at counting some of that towards total amount we can lend them. It makes a lot of sense. If we sort of track back on what the last 10, maybe even 15 years, as we've seen the rise of software as a service as not only a software architectural model, but as a business model, this whole notion of a subscription economy and minimizing the barriers to entry for customers, turning it into something that's really simple and easy to budget for, such as a monthly fee or even an annualized fee. What we've seen though, what I've noticed anyway with some of the big tech segment is that where they started five, 10 years ago at just a simple price point, $30 a month, $40 a month, we're seeing more sophistication and nuance evolving out of their pricing plans now where they're starting to understand that there's a lot more value being generated for customers. And so they're starting to incorporate transactional-based models that derive from having that basic relationship. So there is a foundation subscription fee, but then there are plus other things that can be turned on that over and above the original plan type that perhaps five years ago made a lot of sense, but now there's more value being generated for customers. So it's great that you have that flexibility and that adaptability to be able to work with the specific characteristics of potential client of lighter capital. Are there sort of ranges in terms of how you qualify a good fit? Is there sort of too small, too big? What are some of the qualification criteria that you look for in deciding whether you can really help a particular founder with their growth plans? What we need to see is at least $15,000 of monthly recurring revenue for three consecutive months and then beyond that, a six-month revenue history. So I always say to our to potential start, um, companies that we're going to fund, if your revenue goes $100, we'd be happy to provide funding for you and look at it in a different way. And that reason is that we want to see that sticky growth. What we find is that once a customer signs on with a SaaS product, they very rarely leave unless there's something considerably wrong with the product or a competitor takes them away. We'd like to see that so it's easy, it's predictable growth for us to judge it off, as I said, because we don't take any equity So we can't judge it off that. We don't take any guarantees. So it's high risk for us. So what we do like to see is that sticky growth. And more so, what we also need to see is four paying customers as a minimum. And then we know that a lot of startups have high burn. So we do take that into account. But what we can't see is negative, under negative 100% burn. So if you're earning $20,000 a month, we can't see you burning more than $40,000 in the month, if that makes sense. Check sizes that we do is minimum 50K. So that is roughly between three and four X multiple of $15,000, which is the minimum. And then the maximum is a million dollars. So anywhere in between there is our go-to. So from 15,000 to $250,000 monthly recurring revenue is what we typically look at. Yeah, I think some further things to add to that, like Brandon's ability to see that customers are sticky. And I think most SaaS companies start off with monthly subscriptions, which we can see gives a customer a chance to leave. If we're looking at a company with limited time of revenue and every customer's on a yearly contract paid in advance, we might not be really confident around the potential churn from those customers because they're already locked in for that first year. But if they're paying month to month, they have the ability to leave at any time. So if they've been there for five, six months, it gives us good confidence that they're not moving very quickly. As we said before, we look at that 
monthly recurring revenue is a proportion of total revenue. The higher, the better. Gross margin is pretty important from our point of view. Obviously, different lenders have different criteria, but we're looking at sort of anything over sort of 50% gross margin, which is generally what you'd see over 70%, 75% in that B2B SaaS space. If you've got half consulting, half SaaS revenue, then it's obviously going to come down to that 50% mark. We look at customer count. As Brendan said, customer count doesn't really measure, but obviously it comes into, we like to see the more customers, the better, but it comes into customer concentration. So we like to see more than four customers, ideally, well, definitely. But if you've got four customers, there's likely to be some some high concentration in your users. So we don't like to have the top customer being over 40% of your revenue or your top three being over 60% of your revenue. Again, that gives us confidence that if something was to happen to a major customer, that reduces our risk in terms of default risk in the track. I'm just looking at other things. Year-on-year growth measures really well. That's quite important on a rating side. On that side, well, it's obviously easy for a company, who's a small company to grow at 100% growth, 200% growth. You grow from five grand a month to 10 grand is easier. Then it's not as easy to grow from a million dollars a month to $2 million a month. The bigger the company, the more weight we'll put on growth. It's easier to grow a small company. The big thing that we find is the key when people come to us is this whole notion around how much runway have they got. And runway is a really in-debt world, I suppose, when the growth capital world Runway is a really important piece and, and we don't have, because we don't have any optional warrant piece in our offering, we are really looking at can the current financials justify paying off the money we're about to lend. So we like to see ideally 9 to 12 months runway, might look at less, ideally it's 9 to 12 months runway and how we measure that is we're looking at your money in the bank plus the money we can lend you and then looking at your actual current monthly burn, might look at an average of the last three months. Example might be you have 100 grand we can give you 400 grand. Your monthly burn is 25, 25 grand. Therefore, you've got theoretically around about 20 months runway. Obviously, we're not taking into account our payments there. We also know that when a company borrows money, they need to spend it. So we know that burn is going to be higher theoretically, but we look at the current numbers and say that gives us a starting point to look at lending money from. There's another element of value here that is just sort of dawning on me in speaking to you. It goes towards the plotting or roadmapping, the timing of capital, what type of capital, when's the right time to actually do it. I'm interested in your thoughts on this with respect to a lot of capital. It's just before handing over to you on that response, it's just listening to the way that you're approaching the analysis of the business that you're working with. You seem to have a metricized view of the world, which I think would be extremely valuable for a founder to hear that and see it. For example, somebody might come to you and let's just say they're on in the spectrum of acceptable to your model versus not acceptable. A lot of great feedback in that where if somebody was trying to engage with you and you said, look, not right now because you don't meet these particular criteria, that would then help the founder to fine tune their own ideas around what are my measures of success here? How can I position my business so that it is attractive to be supported by somebody like Lighter Capital, which based on the type of SaaS metrics that you're talking to there in that kind of breakdown, would then go towards also laying a good foundation in the way that you manage the business going forward so that when you move to the next stage that you're in a position where you're match ready for uh, venture capital or other types of growth equity going down the road because you're basically graduating in modifying the business model so that it not only is good for you as a founder and as a manager of your own business, but it also speaks the right language to third parties who might be interested in joining you as an equity partner or perhaps exiting you down the track. So what are your thoughts on that and sort of in the context of timing, 
when is the right timing and how can the founder really sort of take advantage of this beyond just money to actually build in those insights and that wisdom that you have because you're across a portfolio of uh, clients who are all looking for growth capital. From my, look, you just said it perfectly. I think we had a, we had a meeting, our weekly team meeting the other day and we had one of our founders come on. He said the best, one of the best things about going through the whole lot of capital process was he got a, a good health check of his business and sort of understood that he was in a pretty good position. And we sort of know that if your metrics that we look at, if they're super solid, then you're going to be a good candidate for venture capital down the track if you keep those metrics in the same path. Now, we're not naive to think that I mean, we're not founders ourselves. We obviously work with founders. It's oftentimes you cannot get yourself, you know, you're a founder who needs to grab some revenue. There's revenue opportunity there. You can't just sit back and try and get your metrics in place so you can get some debt in three months' time or some growth capital in three months' time. You're going to grab that revenue opportunity. So there's going to be certain companies that can never get their metrics in a place to get money from because they're going to go through a big burn cycle to chase some revenue and they might have other options of capital, be it equity, be it some family and friends equity or angel equity, and that can help them do that. You're so right. The whole education process is key. I would say I speak to, to multiple companies per month and Brandon does as well. And the biggest thing I see, these are the ones that have got some good metrics that Brandon will push through to me. If they'd come to us four months earlier when they had, or a year earlier when they had some equity on the table as well, which increased their runway, or they came to us even three or four months before, before they went through a big spend or their metrics were better, they would have qualified for some money from us, but maybe now their burn is so high and they've only got a couple of months runway left that we can't fund them. I think planning is the key. The biggest thing I would just seeing the people I speak to, if some people haven't planned, and there's a saying in that in the sort of our market that the best time to get debt or growth capital, you don't actually need it. That's when your metrics are the best and it's easy to get the money. Obviously, we are dealing with very optimistic founders, who, which is the best part of our job. We're speaking to optimistic people every day. So they believe they've got some equity, say, a year ago. At that time, they believed they could get themselves to being cash flow positive in 12 months' time or 18 months' time. But then it gets to 12 months down the track and they suddenly realise they won't hit their targets, the 18-month targets, and they come to a company like us for some growth capital, non-dilutive growth capital, and suddenly their metrics don't look as good as they would have maybe six months, 12 months beforehand. They could have got some debt with that equity and extended their runway. Your planning is the key. You know, I spoke to a female founder of the day who was literally started her business six months ago and she just wants to plan for two years ahead. It was, I was amazed. I'm one of the first people I've spoken to. She wanted to understand what our product was, where she needs to be in two years' time to not go down that dilutive path initially until she gets to a bigger AR number. And what's your take on it, Brandon? What would you say is the best time to access this type of funding? Is it as simple as saying, look, if you need 50K to a million dollars and you can support it with roughly three times revenue or four times revenue or coinciding with that idea of planning and actually developing a relationship with Lighter Capital in order to give you a launch pad towards equity type events down the road by getting that kind of metricized overlay into your business, which obviously helps you with Lighter Capital, but also gives you a dashboard that's going to be very compelling in how it communicates the value of your business to third parties down the road as well. What are your thoughts? I don't think there's never a good time to not take revenue-based financing. Everyone wants to grow. And the issue is that people don't want to grow when they have to give up equity of their business. If you're thinking, look, we'd love to make a couple hires and grow our little our technology a little bit more, but we don't want to give up another 10% of our company, we'd be happy to have a chat. So long as, as we said before, you fit within our criteria. We'd be happy to have a chat. As you said, Yanni, is there always a good time to take it? What we find is that people usually will come to us and they won't fit or they'll just want to have a chat and learn a little bit about Lighter Capital and what we do. I mean, 
I'm the first point of contact. I'm more than happy to have those conversations. And what we find is the second time around that they come back to us or we reach out again and we say like, hey, how's the business going? Is it, are you guys reaching the figures that we talked about last time? And they say, yep, that's when we fund a lot of companies is on their second time around with us. So opening up the conversations and building the relationship with us or pretty much anyone is one of the most important things. Don't be afraid to be told no. Being rejected is one of the worst feelings in the world. But I promise that like Matt and myself, very rarely reject anyone without leaving the door open. So it's always a no for now, but it's a yes for later. We'd be more than happy to have a chat to anyone. And even if you want to have a chat to me about, or Matt or anyone within the space about whether their business is more suited for equity funding, VC funding, or our funding, I mean, I'm more than happy to have a chat to anyone about it and talk because like my background is before being working at Lighter Capital, I was working in a venture capital fund. So I'm happy to have a chat to anyone and, and open up that conversation. But yeah, I don't think that there's ever a bad time to take lighter capital funding just because you don't give up any equity. So you don't have to worry about losing that extra 10%, which could affect the future rounds of the business. One thing as well, Yanni, is just speaking with people who've gone through equity style fundraising too early. There's 100% there's a massive spot for equity in this marketplace. These valuations are great. It often can supercharge your business from being a good business to a great business and we acknowledge that and if someone can go in that path great please they should do it but there's also a capability or capacity aspect to it you can go and get a lot of money from a give away 20 percent of your company but you have to spend that money pretty quickly the, the venture capital or the, or the equity provider doesn't want you to have that money sitting in the bank they want you to go out and spend and that spend comes with revenue lags significantly you're going to be back at the cap table looking for some more equity in 12 months' time, which can then now you've lost 30%, 40% of your business or not lost, you've given away that amount of your business. Obviously, there's definitely help that comes from providers, but you're sort of forced to grow fast. With our money, you're not going to get as much money, okay, but you can do essentially what you want with it and grow at your own pace and hopefully get yourself to a that valuation where you get a lump sum and your business is grown enough that you can handle that capacity extra capability and come in quickly and you can handle the growth. So, gents, tell me, what is revenue-based financing? It sounds complicated, but it's pretty simple. So, basically, an example would be if we were to lend you, say, $200,000 over a three-year term, as an example, we might lend that to you at a, a cap of 1.3. So, we're lending you a dollar and you pay us, paying us back a dollar thirty. Lend you $200,000, you have to pay us back $260,000 over the three years that loan. Now you pay that back as a percentage of your what we call your net cash receipts. That's any revenue coming into your bank account. That percentage, depending on how much you borrowed to your monthly recurring revenue, that percentage might be around say eight to ten percent. And you pay that back on a monthly basis. Revenue-based financing works really well for companies with lumpy cash flow because some months you might have customers paying yearly in advance and you have a big revenue month where you can pay us back accordingly. Next month might be a low revenue month, but you're only paying us back that 8 or 10% of that revenue that month. So it really works well with your cash flow. Another big benefit of revenue-based financing is like an insurance policy. has that, you have that downside protection. For example, lost some revenue, lost a couple of big customers. You can't default on a revenue-based financing loan because you're only paying back a percentage of that monthly revenue. Obviously, at the end, there'd be a balloon payment, which would restructure if you weren't going to meet your targets. But it just the two main things I'd say with revenue-based financing is it suits lumpy cash flow, the seasonal cash flow, and gives you that downside protection like an insurance policy. I think it's a great model just based on my own experience in building businesses and having gone through capital raising, having worked with debt, having gone through all the battlefield of startup and trying to actually achieve your goals. 
And when you think about it, a lot of founders are kind of maybe somewhat romanced into the idea of being founders, right? And so the way the angel and venture capital sectors tend to work is that there are a lot of sort of incubators around the traps. You can join, you can do your 12-week course on how to be an entrepreneur. You get a lot of resources there to figure out how to build an MVP and what is an MVP and things of that nature and how to develop personas. And there's a lot of this stuff that's really good and very sensible, but there's not enough emphasis on how to actually develop products for funding parties as well. Because in a way, if you think about the idea of why you're building a startup, you're, well, you're trying to serve a customer, but who exactly is your customer? Is it the person that you're building the product for? Yes, but you have other customers as well. You have employees of customers, you have funding parties of customers. And so getting that feedback into it so that you actually learn how to provide a product for those customers as well enhances the way that you actually develop your business over time. And that is really useful to actually be continuously learning and continuously improving in that regard because you're inheriting all this knowledge and wisdom from people who are across many similar scenarios like your own that maybe you could learn all that through the course of time, but that's a really expensive learning curve to actually wait 10 years to get yourself into a position where you finally join the dots on something where by working with you, working with potential VCs for further down the road, you're incorporating all that feedback and synthesizing it into the way that you're ranking and prioritizing the things you need to do within your business. And it's so much different to actually saying, here's a really beautifully presented PowerPoint presentation and a very impassioned speech, but I want you to give me money and take all the risk. Because that's kind of the deal when a lot of founders go off to pitch nights and they sit in front of venture capital and they sell the passion. But really what they're saying is they want somebody else to take all the risk. Whereas this particular idea is really you're signaling through your revenue, through your monthly recurring revenue, that MRR or that annualized recurring revenue, the ARR. You're basically saying, I'm no longer asking you to accept my passion as the reason for investing. I'm showing you that actual customers believe in this story. And that's a really important and perhaps understated part of your model that there's a certain assurance that's starting to materialize by being able to say to somebody, look, I may not have a house to secure this or I may not have some other kind of asset to back this other than my enthusiasm, my energy. But what I'm showing you here is that customers agree with me that there's a solution that I'm offering them. And here's the evidence of that. What are your thoughts around that? We're definitely passionate. Like we love seeing founders with passion. It's one of the best things about this industry is that everyone is passionate about their business and their certain sector that they're in. But as you said, like we like to see the revenue that reflects that passion. Having passion and having that backed up by real life example, we've got these customers that believe in the passion that we're, that we're showing is quite attractive to us and is exactly what we're looking for. There's a founder there that's unsure about whether they want to go down the VC pathway or the debt pathway or the revenue-based pathway. Lighter capital and the way that we look at funding, instead of throwing them in the deep end, I think it's letting them take those steps into the shallow end, into the pool and learning about it and then being able to swim over to the deep end when they're ready and they feel like they are confident enough that they can grow at the pace that equity-based partners want them to grow at. Whereas we're happy for founders to grow at their own pace. And like I always say to founders whenever I meet them is that we don't know anything about, like we know we're hearing about your business from you. I'm not in a position to tell you how to grow your business. You're the one that's developed it. You grow at your pace and we're happy to support you along that journey. So I think that that for us is one of the biggest things is that we will support any founder alongside their journey in whatever way that they wish to grow it. It also means that you can actually get the right skills and capabilities into your business earlier rather than actually waiting to 
organically get to a point where you can finally afford, you know, the right team to actually help you with the acceleration side of it. Gents, it's been really great. And uh, yeah, I really commend you on your introduction into the Australian market. The name sort of says it all. It's lighter capital. It's a great option for a founder that is sensitive to diluting their equity or perhaps not able to convince venture capital at this point in time that the company's worth more. So what they can do is gain access to cash resources to be able to accelerate their growth and I guess meet the VC market on a different playing field once they've been able to demonstrate the success within their model to a point where VCs would agree that the value is on the same page. Great toolkit to have in resourcing your business going forward. I guess just one last question before we finish up today. What's the future going to look like over the next five to 10 years from Lighter Capital's point of view? Are you going to see you've got other innovations in the pipeline or you're really focused on just propagating this now and getting bigger in this particular segment? No, I think, yeah, we're definitely looking at our CEO, Melissa Widner. She's definitely focused on widening our credit box, not just looking at the narrow lens we can sometimes focus on. We will look to expand our product range, expand our offering. We know we can take on more companies and take on more risk and we're confident that we can model adaption our model will overcome that risk and can still make money on our side so the biggest key point would be a widening of our credit box so we might have been pretty narrow a year or so ago we're starting to widen that now and and look at other types of revenue as being recurring as one point and as being more open to getting deals across the line that's great gents thanks very much for coming along and talking about that today i really appreciate your time Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced in collaboration with Health Tech X, where we are working toward a world of integrated digital health empowerment for all people. If you'd like more info on how to get involved, head over to the website, healthtechx.com.au. Or if you have any feedback about the show, you can reach out to me directly on LinkedIn, Instagram, or email by following the links in this episode's show notes. And finally, Don't forget to subscribe to Reimagining Healthcare in your podcast app. And if you like what you heard, leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. I'm your host, Yanni Sopanos, and I'll speak to you in our next episode.